Welcome to the Focused People Podcast, where we explore the realities of leading teams and being human. On the line today, Tom McKay, Kyle Gower-Winter, and myself, Hilton Goodmans. Great to have you back, gents. Wonderful. Our topic for today, overcoming the you that's holding you back. We referenced uh, a formula, if you want to call it, for performance, being your potential less interference. And it basically implies that you get in your way or certain things get in your way that limit your performance because it's not potential plus interference, potential minus. So we assume that those things generally are negatives. And the implication of this formula is that, number one, if I have less things holding me back or less reasons for interference, that therefore my performance would allow itself to flow and therefore, or sorry, my potential would allow itself to become reality through performance. It is quite simplistic. It's, it's really a good guide, but it opens up a lot of questions. Naturally, we do have some answers, but you won't have all the answers. For example, potential. Is potential something that is set? Basically, an, a nature versus nurture kind of question. Is it set in stone? Or actually, are there those of us who are able to extend our potential? We're able to connect almost beyond uh, normality into being able to do incredible things. So, for example, your Roger Federer tennis player, Tiger Woods, golf player. We look at them and we talk about them being superhuman. And in a way, what we're referencing is that they didn't know they would have those careers. Maybe they were ambitious and they wanted them, but they didn't know. And a lot of the time they'll say, I'm just so grateful for my career. And in a way, it speaks that their potential went way beyond their idea of what they could achieve. So it raises a lot of very interesting questions about how we're made, about what's possible. Right. And about one of the major questions on the potential side is how fixed we are and how and our fixed view of ourselves and how that can be an interference issue in a way. And obviously on the interference side, there's a whole bunch there that we can unpack today, motivation and various other other things. Kyle, your thoughts on unending potential versus fixed potential? I am in total agreement with Tom, and I was actually trying to find, I believe it was the Talent Code by Daniel Coyle. So, so forgive me if I'm re- not remembering the the details correctly, but and I, I believe it was in this book. Sure. A scientist who was studying this very topic and decided that he wanted to prove or disprove it. He wanted to find a mate. He wanted to find a wife who would be willing to have children with him and raise the children as the scientific experiment. Hmm. He wanted to raise them, I think it was playing the piano or the violin, it was some musical instrument, and he wanted to take whoever child he had and assume that they have normal potential, normal talent, not a genius. He wasn't a genius. He wasn't a savant or anything like that. And he found an average wife who'd be willing to do this. (laughs) And they would just raise their child in an environment that was very stimulating to, say, piano playing. And they, they kept the child out of public schools. They kept them at home so that they could control the environment and thought, well, 
if we raise the child with a lot of influence, so they had posters of famous pianists on the walls, they had someone come in every day and do lessons with them, and just from as early as they could actually hold themselves upright, these children played piano. And he had three daughters, I believe. And at some young age, all of them became grandmaster pianists, phenomenally talented. And just everyone sort of praised them and recognized them as these geniuses. And his point was that you're not born a genius. It's a product of a lot of things. And his particular focus, I believe, was environment. People aren't born professional tennis players or crazy good pianists or musicians and that type of thing. But all of that can be achieved by just focus and practice and just continually building that, that compounding effect. A lot of it depends on the environment for sure, because those parents had a goal in mind for their children right? and they provided an environment to do that. But it did prove that anyone, and, and that was the premise of the book, anyone can achieve greatness. Anyone can be, Come amazing. So we don't have a finite amount of potential, but it is something we can grow. And it's something that's been on my mind recently, and that's this, the idea of compounding. Because I'm an engineer, because I like looking at numbers, if you try and improve just 1%, you just do a little bit, little bit each day. It doesn't matter what your goal is. Say it's you want to lose 10 pounds or 5 kilograms or something by the end of the year. And you decide, well, I'm going to start by just cutting out sugar from my coffee not cutting out sugar from my diet but just just from my coffee anyway the the thing that stood out to me is looking at the numbers take one to the power of 365 one to the power of how many days there are in the year tom i remember has always been good with numbers well tom what's what's the power of one to 365 come on give me a second um <laughs> it's power eh? what is it <laughs> One to the power of 365 is still one. One times one times one times one. You like if you never take that a little step, oh, you're gonna be the same I person. see what you mean. Okay, I'm I missed that story. Sorry. Now you have your calculator. Take one dot zero one, so one percent more, and put that to the power of 365. Yeah, that ends up being quite significant. That's that's about you can you can improve yourself thirty seven times you can be thirty seven times better in a year by yeah. just taking a little step every day, and, and imagine if you did that. Imagine sure. if I started playing the piano at forty, and I just did a little bit one percent. By the time I retire, I could be a grandmaster pianist. Okay, so I, I'm going to throw a little bit of a spanner in the works here. Hang on, doesn't this fly in the face of all of the talk about finding your passion? Because what you're saying is anything, and it goes with the whole 10,000 hours theory. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much like whatever you work at under the right conditions, perhaps with a loving father or whoever sets the right boundaries in place, you could become that. Uh, you could become a lot better at this as well. And doesn't it fly in the, the face of like Jim Collins and a lot of the stuff, like find what you're passionate about, which is also what you can become best in the world at. And then thirdly, what drives your economic engine? So people will gladly pay you or reward you for this. Doesn't this fly in the face of the whole find your passion stuff then? Tom? I honestly think that yes and yes, they're both right. 
or maybe yes and no. <laughs> um, look at Andre Agassi. Andre Agassi was one of the world's best tennis players. His father had him doing extreme things for tennis. Obviously, he published his book and his tell-all about his life up to a point. And what came out was that, you know, he, he didn't have that love that Jim Collins has spoken about. Maybe he does in some format, but in some way he resented it. So I think what Jim Collins speaks about, I, I can't necessarily say I don't agree with him. I just think I don't agree to those who feel that that's the only way to achieve. I think you can actually become good at many things. What I do believe, however, is that when you find something that you're passionate about and you love and you give it focus and attention, it's going to flow out of you almost like water out of a tap. It's automatic. It wants to flow. It calls you to flow and you're going to achieve, achieve incredible things and possibly have a happier life with it. Whereas I think you can be good at many things, but it won't necessarily bring you balance if uh, it were possible to reframe what Jim Collins is saying, it would be, if you want a really contented life, then find something that you're passionate about, give it lots of focus and you'll achieve great things whilst you're doing it. But that's on the basis of maybe more contentment. But I certainly don't think it prevents you from being able to achieve many things. Of course, you have your Mozarts of this world who by a ridiculous age, are doing incredible things. And that's really where we, we challenge. And that's what I love about life. It's not a formula. It's not whatever we discuss is not exact. There's always somebody who breaks the rule. He still had the right environment. He wasn't sort of uh, sitting out in the field, picking grass all day, and then going and doing magical things. He was still practicing his instrument. But <laughs> his capacity was yeah. so evolved so early. And his passion it was his entire life, and in a way, it consumed him. You know, also being overly passionate and following everything you love, I think if one were to temper that with a sense of balance is so important, whether you love it or don't love it, and that's the only issue I have with sometimes that whole passion and you can be, is that it can actually become too much, like sugar. It's beautifully sweet, but dilute it. Right. If you don't dilute it, it'll get you in the end. And so the long answer is that I think there's space for both views. So, yeah, linked to that Brené Brown with her embrace the suck kind of thing. Like um, sometimes there's some sucky aspects of it. I hope that's not an offensive word, but uh, just literally parts of our work that we don't like. And that we need to do. That's not going against the whole strengths movement where we're saying, play to your strengths, maximize those, and then just get your weaknesses up to a point where you can cope or you can involve others. I don't think the two are necessarily different uh, or, or dis that distinct. But there's a sense in which we also need to embrace that suckiness of our, our work. Uh, I'm not a great lover of reports. I love to rather be with people and to be unlocking their future or their team's future. All of us do actually in this business. But for me, those reports are important as well. Clients want to know what's the feedback from your session, not just, oh, it was nice. <laughs> people enjoyed it. Uh, I think from a business perspective, having an enjoyable session isn't necessarily the goal. Sometimes it's got to be a painful session that unlocks potential. 
how do we unlock the team performance? What's holding me back from being my best in the team and at work as well? I think sometimes we, we forget the strong link of engagement. Uh, a lot of the employee engagement theory says, bring your whole self to work. And I guess that's where we want to go. Is how can we stop holding our whole self back, be at our best performance in the workplace, in the team as well? Comments on that, gents? I think there are two ways to approach that question. Uh, despite the environment that we're in at work. So say we have a, a poor environment and we have a bad relationship with our, our boss or our team. How do we stay positive and keep coming to work, keep bringing our best selves to work and doing the best work we can. Good. Uh, so I think that's one area that, you know, it's, there's a whole section in the self-help part of the library that's dedicated to that. <laughs> and, and so much of that has got to do with the stories we tell ourselves, mastering our own internal dialogue. And I think Tom has a lot, he has a lot more knowledge on that than I do. So maybe he can talk to that a little bit. But then the other part is how as leaders can we unlock and help the individuals in the team to bring their, their whole selves? I think that was the latter part of your question. And, and I do have thoughts on that. And it goes back to this idea of environment. One, it's coaching. You know, In my one-on-ones with my reports, I talk to them about things like this and like, what's your internal dialogue? And let's, let's talk about that and, you know, and I tell them, like, we employ you as a 100% person, a whole self. Like, I don't expect you to only bring 60% of yourself to work because, or 50% because that's the work you and you leave the personal you at home. As a leader, what I can affect is the environment. So one is on the, at the individual level, making it psychologically safe for them to, to just be honest. And then at the team level, provide that environment where, I try and coach the team and unlike some parents who sort of force their child to play tennis or also a sport, I would rather provide an inviting environment where they want to play. They see that it's fun. They, they see that it can release those endorphins and they can have a good time doing it. So as a leader, manage that environment. But at, on an individual level, you need to manage that internal dialogue. And that, that's what I was curious to hear Tom's thoughts on. Very good. So a little bit more Serena Williams and her sister. Venus. <laughs> yes. Venus, thank you. I was going to get for a moment. Uh, the other one. But yes, they were also passionate about it, plus the environment, which is interesting. Yeah. Tom, the internal dialogue, the relational style, such an important part of this. Uh, Seligman talked about relational style being your relationship with yourself plus others in terms of your dialogue as well. Speak to us. I'm just going to take a, a tiny step back and just refer to that formula again. Performance is potential, less interference. And when we look at the interference side, we're looking at things that both enable us and in a way disable us or, or prevent us from moving in a usually a positive way directional course. So we really need to look at the internal dialogue as a hugely important part of one's state of mind. 
And that really uh, speaks to motivation. It speaks to a sense of belonging. It speaks to culture, both a personal culture, the way you treat yourself, the way you view yourself, the way you view circumstance, and the way you respond accordingly, will also speak to how you interact interpersonally and how you respond interpersonally. And one of the complexities of teams is obviously it involves more than one person. So you now need to be managing a whole bunch of variables, moving parts of, let's say, the 10 people in a team. There are now 10 different perspectives of the world, 10 different states of mind. Each person has an internal dialogue. Um, each person has a psychology, which we talk about their values and beliefs, and they have a personality, which is a way of expressing themselves, a tempo, a language, and a lot about the importance of internal dialogue, especially in a team environment, is to build that exact word, environment, in a way that promotes, number one, the ability to bring more of your own personal dialogue, internal dialogue, into a space feeling somewhat safe to be able to express yourself appropriately within a team. Number two is that the team creates a culture that sits above and within that team which sets a tone and an understanding for a way of being reaction uh, and values that really un- and beliefs that underpin how we respond to business circumstances and how we record and celebrate our wins and how we also communicate with one another. Internal dialogue that happens within a team and within an individual is hugely, hugely important. If we step back and we talk about, well, what is that internal dialogue? Because I've spoken about it a little bit sort of generically or sort of higher level. If we chunk down a little bit into detail, we're now starting to reference the way that we actually filter information. Number one, if we look at each human being, we receive an impulse from the environment. We sense it and immediately our unconscious or what they call subconscious mind starts to effectively filter information. We delete. You walk into a room, we only pick up a few things. Most of it, information is deleted. We'll generalize it in pattern recognition. So we recognize either we know it or we don't know it, or we distort it. For example, uh, you know, one person will see a bee flying along and will be very relaxed and the other person will have a heart attack because to them, there's a distortion in the moment. And we're not saying that that isn't based in reality or past, but these things happen. We either delete, we recognize and pattern, or we distort it, meaning that we move into the future or into the past, so we're not always in the moment, or we create something uh, bigger or we have a response to it, which is out of proportion. And that's how the mind filters. And that's often based on past decisions. It's based on values, beliefs. It's based on the concepts of time, and space. Where are you in the world? It's based on matter. It's how you're made. And it's based on energy, which is a lot about your own energy systems and how you relate to your world. And so we filter information. And at this point, we respond. And that response will then affect our body language. It'll affect our mood. 
And so what do they often say? If you're not feeling good and you're slouching, sit upright. Right. Just that small movement. Or if you need to change, change your posture or stand up or take a deep breath in. Because at that moment, it allows you to reframe your state. And your state is that will then determine the response you put out there. And so our internal dialogues, and the reason I've gone into this is our internal dialogues are built up of millions of moments of the state being reinforced one way or another into what we call a personality or a psychology and a psychology, I should say. Some of it we're born with. Some of it is part of our family history. Some of it is, is ourselves through life. And the, the way we nurture that internal dialogue on a daily basis will determine how we are and to some degree the nature of the life that we have. We take that into our teams. And so being a manager of a team is a huge responsibility because you have to take in people with a history, with an internal dialogue built on these millions of moments filtered in a certain way. And then you say to them, right, guys, this is our culture. We're going to be energetic. Now, this person might be quite sort of a slow energy or, you know, they might have some negative beliefs. And you now have to somehow find a way to link this person into something that pulls them into this energetic culture. And so, you know, I think that's enough from me, but, but it gives you a sense of how important these internal dialogues are. They can really eat us alive. We can victimize ourselves through internal dialogue. We can also emancipate ourselves through internal dialogue. And I think if you look at those Tiger Woods and Roger Federer's and you see them at their toughest moments, you know, Roger Federer, five set match, two all, and he, he hits an incredible shot and you see that come on that he does. And you think, wow, that guy's, three hours more into a match, his body saw, and there's that internal dialogue that gives him the boost to carry on. And that's what makes what we call superheroes, superheroes, is that their internal dialogue comes with enough energy to keep propelling them forward positively. It's very important for us to understand that. That's so good. Sorry, Kyle. Uh, sorry, I was on mute. So I asked a question and I thought it was very rude that Tom didn't respond. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, sir. You, you mentioned three, I think it was three things. I'll, I'll, yes. give you the first, I'll give you two. I don't remember the third. You know, the things that affect your internal dialogue and matter, what you're made of, your biology, energy, and there was something else. It's time and space. Time and space are the fundamental basis of, of life. But what's most important to simplify it is that you live in the inner way, just we have to be mindful that we live in the morality of our time. So things that were appropriate in the 1800s may not be now. Um, so there's time and space. Where do you live in space? Where do you live on the planet? Also determines what's appropriate and not appropriate. But time, space, matter, and energy are four fundamental elements of life and those then also interlink with decisions, values, beliefs, okay. past experiences. So I was thinking, just like you said, if you're slouching, if you can recognize that and sit up straight, I often hear this you know, when you're getting ready to give a presentation or go into a nervous situation, maybe it's an interview, just to sit up straight before you go in there, take some deep breaths, maybe look in the mirror. And take the Superman stance. I know that's coined somewhere. And prepare yourself. And that actually has a biological effect on your brain. 
out of those five things or forced things that matter, energy, time, and space, talking about environment, it's not easy to tell someone like, just think positive or just you, you got to change the way you think. Not everyone's out to get you because they've got a lifetime of experiences to back up their thinking. They're justified in their thinking. But what you could tell them is here are some things you can do to help reprogram your mind to try and get you into a better state of mind rather than just telling them think positively or change your attitude. It's more like uh... when... when <laughs> <laughs> Something I read recently, and forgive me because I don't mark down everything I read and where it came from, but it was fascinating that your internal dialogue could tell you one thing, but you could actually stand up and in front of the mirror verbally say the opposite. You may not believe it, but you say it. And the fact that it's coming out and then it's coming back through your ears, you're actually reprogramming those neural pathways or you're building new ones. It doesn't actually matter who says it. You could have a loved one encouraging you. You could listen to a self-help audio book or something, or you could say it yourself. It actually doesn't matter who says it. It's the fact that you're hearing it helps to negate and reprogram the internal dialogue. You can affect the environment by doing things physically or by saying and listening to things. It's so influential. People don't realize how influential the consumption of media and what we hear and what we see mm. has on that internal dialogue. And we can actually affect that in a positive way. Yeah. And I think priming is the word for a lot of that stuff in terms of preparation and getting yourself into the next level. I think you're so right. We, we are consumers, mass consumers rather than critical thinkers. And there's such a, a challenge on us to not just reflect the values and the mores that are being uh, propagated around us but to really think carefully about what do we want to be where do we want to go what do I feel is purposeful for me and uh, I think what we're talking about in terms of the thinking side of things Tom you you mentioned something about victims and uh, it's a word that I'd written down a little bit earlier as well just this victim thinking that we can easily find ourselves in it's not that we're trying to be negative but we can find ourselves in that sort of uh, I'm at the mercy of my circumstances vibe and that will hold us back from achieving our potential. So it's one of the inhibitors, so to speak. There are many others that are self-sabotage, if I can use that term. I wrote a couple of things down in thinking about today, like deflecting success, where we just push success away because we don't feel that we're worthy of it. Or something like avoiding negative feedback. Because we're afraid that it diminishes us if the circumstance comes our way and we don't feel ready for it or we feel like we've got to project the right image, that we've got the right mindset, etc. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Talk to me more about the victim side of things. Well, you know, if we, if we were to go back to the word victim, and I haven't gone back to look at the etymology side of the word. But what we're speaking about is a sense that when someone is a victim, they fall prey to something or to circumstance. So the sense of being cannon fodder, being almost, almost it gives you a sense of, of 
curled up in a ball, having given up, being easy prey for some big nasty thing that's hunting me. Yeah. And so we generally feel sympathy or we feel sorry or empathy, whichever, for victims. And there are some who are really our victims in life. If you were walking along in the Boston bombing that marathon and, you know, watching the end, and I mean, that is, that's really rough. And some people go through really terrible things in life too often. But at the end of the day, they've fallen victim to a circumstance. Where victimhood comes on, though, is the mindset of being a victim. That is very different to being a victim. You and I, everyone on this planet will fall victim to something they don't like at some point. We will all be a victim. Life is vulnerable. And sometimes you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, or some would say the perfect place at the perfect time. Sure. But life's going to find you and get you because it appears that life is about learning and growing and that challenges are where we learn. You know, I was a semi-professional tennis player. I played uh, in junior international tennis all over the world. And I remember more of my losses than I remember my wins. It's just how it is. They hurt. Mm. And you remember them and you learn so much from them. Being a victim is actually an incredibly important part of life. You grow through, through difficulties. Look at how it, a massive oak tree grows from a tiny little seed that's got to push through this mountain of earth, push its way up against gravity. Look at how a diamond is formed from massive pressure of carbon deep in the earth. So some of how a pearl is caused through the irritation of salt water. And so it's all through challenge that beauty comes. Sure. So on one hand, being a victim is very important. I want you to be a victim, not too much. I want me to be a victim. Of course, not, not too much, not, not in a way that's horrific. I'm just talking about general day-to-day challenges of life because they, they do grow you. But victimhood is a psychology. Victimhood is a belief, a belief that you're not worthy or belief that life is unfair or a belief that you can't do something or that someone else is better than you, that something is intolerable And the fascinating thing, I'm going to link this to you, Kyle, what you said earlier was you were talking about how you can stand in a mirror and say something and how it doesn't really matter whether you believe it or not. It it sort of starts to take place. Well, the truth is I did quite a lot of study into hypnosis at one point because I was fascinated in this unconscious mind of ours, which actually is 99.9999% of everything we do and everything we are is formed by our unconscious mind, not our conscious mind. Our conscious mind is only aware of five or six or seven different things at any one second. We're only aware of a few things. Everything else is in your library. Everything else is internal. And the more hypnosis um, study I did, the more I realized that the unconscious mind does not process negatives. So you can say to us, man, that's hard. Or I can say, man, that's not easy. Now, the word your brain hears is easy. And so whilst it's a small, distinct thing, it's actually much better to say not easy than it is to say difficult or hard. It's a really fascinating thing because our unconscious brain does not process negatives. And so if you wake up every day, you can't say, I'm going to grow an inch, I'm going to grow an inch, I'm going to grow, I'm going to be seven foot tall. There are limits to what you can and can't do, of course. We are practical people. At Focus People, we are practical. But we do believe in 
in a mythical element as well. Uh, when I say a mythical, maybe more mystical element would be the right word, yeah. where the mind is a, is a mystery and we are able to really change our mindset, our victimhood mindset through positive reference, through positive language, associate yourself with people who bring you up. Talk positively to yourself more often. When there's something that doesn't go the way you are, or you are a victim of life, uh, frame it as quickly as possible into something that you've learned from, even if that implies regret, because regret implies that you've learned the lesson. Moving away from victimhood to, to, to finish that thought, victimhood implies positive internal representations, positive states of body language, positive states of language, um, positive talking to yourself as frequently as possible whenever you have the opportunity to reframe it into something more useful. Sure. The more you do that, the more you move towards the opposite of victimhood, which I'm not sure what that is. Uh, that would be contentedness. I don't know. Something along those lines. You move more frequently towards that. Optimism. Optimism. Nice one. You remind me, uh, it, it's not that we're in denial, or that we're denying the bad or that something has gone wrong. There's an acceptance of that, but there's the next step where we're saying, I actually choose to focus on my learning, my growth. I choose to focus on what I can take from the situation. And I was just reminded, you triggered this thought in me as well, about being thankful instead of sorry. I think in South Africa, we, we use that term a lot. We say, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry that I couldn't make it. Or like, sorry, Tom, I missed the appointment. And uh, it's, it's not a wrong thing to say, but it's interesting. Rather reframe it as to something you're thankful for. Thank you for your patience in waiting for me, rather than sorry that I messed up. It's just almost in our wording, because words are powerful, they create mindsets, they create conversations between us. And it's so important in a team environment as well. So I think on one hand, one message that's coming through very strongly already is, how's our internal dialogue? How's our conversation with ourself? Is it positive? Would we hang out with somebody who spoke to us the way that we speak to ourselves? And if the answer is no, we want to change that and look for the good in ourselves and have some self-compassion and look at empathy for ourselves, knowing that we come with some good and some bad in our, our world and in our life experience that we can draw on. The other side, of course, being that we've got a choice. We've got a choice in the present as to what to do. Circumstances may be what they are, but we still have the choice. And the whole field of reality therapy spends a lot of time there saying, let's not not acknowledge the past. Let's not deny the past and its influence and where we need to work through that. Let's do that. But let's focus on the present and what we can do. What's the reality of our relationship or what we bring and what choices do we have right now in the moment as well? So I'm hearing those kind of things coming through. I think it's good to link this all back to, to team performance because focus people, at the end of the day, is our niche strength is in building up the strength of teams in the business environment. And, you know, we've spoken a, a lot about the importance of internal dialogue and that's team internal dialogue and interpersonal dialogue, because that's what it is in teams. It's actually verbalized or it's body language expressed 
externally, whereas my internal dialogue is actually within me. Although you can tell a lot about my internal dialogue by watching me. You can watch the way I sit, the way I talk, uh, my body language when I'm, you know, just quietly in my own space. In a sure. team, uh, you, you pick it up differently. A team, you've got to pick it up by who's leading. And how important is it that the manager or the leaders in a team have got a, a positive frame of reference for their general state of being and that how important again it becomes for us to acknowledge their internal, their own internal dialogue and the way they express it within a team, which really overhangs then the general interpersonal dialogue in a team. So that goes back to affect our filters again. And so the team will filter in a positive value, positive belief, They'll make better decisions, which, which affect the way they, you know, each day they will filter in a more positive way. So your team moves habitually in a better direction more consistently. When you don't have, have that and you've got a tough manager or someone who's very sure, maybe task-oriented or, or not a great communicator, the issue is that it can create that sense more of fear or it can create a sense where people kind of just focus on doing their job and there's not a lot of awareness. So awareness in the team is something that really has to be built up and you do it through the dialogue side, you do it through the filters, do it through the values and the beliefs. And that's what culture really is meant to be about. Culture is meant to be that thing that pulls you all towards a goal through a, through a frame of reference, which affects your filters. And I think for me, that kind of puts the whole thing together where we started at uh, you know, performance is potential less interference. Well, when you've got a culture that's pulling you and your, your interpersonal dialogue in the team is pulling you in a positive direction, it really does allow that, that potential within the team. Uh, it gives it an opportunity. doesn't mean you're going to necessarily guarantee success, but it gives it an opportunity to be successful. So good, Tom. I mean, it feels like one of the things that you're tapping into is the greater sum so we, an individual has high performance, but the environment doesn't allow that to flourish. It's not a powerful high performance team. But the sum of the parts, even if you've got people who are performing at a certain level, it's not yet high performance. The sum can be even higher because of them being aligned around a culture, vision, a way of being. And we were talking about it earlier, about being overlaid, so to speak. So it's layers and layers of, what did you say, millions of moments that are overlaid, one on top of each other, that form this. And so culture isn't this thing that's, oh, well, here's our culture. Gee, doesn't it look great in a box? Uh, it's more a case of what I'm doing right now in this moment is building the culture or destroying it. And so I've got choices and I can be looking at how am I enhancing this thing? How am I inhibiting or enabling performance in the moment for myself and others? And I can control that moment, but I can't necessarily shift the whole culture in one day. Definitely I can't do that, not just necessarily. And I think there's that whole thing of how do we build it moment by moment and take ownership for what we can do and what we can be, avoid the excuses as much as possible, don't allow ourselves the, the crutch, but rather own it and say, I choose to be this way and I'm going to be better. I'm going to be open to the feedback around me, going to be open to get more out of myself by putting myself out there a little bit more as well, which is good. 
I have. Uh, okay, just making sure I wasn't on mute again. <laughs> I've got several more thoughts that we could go for another hour, I'm sure. But uh, just to end on what you had said, Daniel Coyle in the Culture Code, I referenced him already with the Talent Code, um, but it was the Culture Code I read first. There's a pattern I'm picking up. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was so good. The one, the first book, the Culture Code, was so good. I thought, well, what else has he written? <laughs> Led me to the Talent Code. He calls these little moments culture cues. Oh, no. So, excuse me. Belonging cues. And a culture is built by these moments referred to in the book, if you're interested, by belonging cues. You can filter everything and think about how am I making others feel? Do they feel like they belong? You're going to build this amazing culture. So if I hear you right, it's almost in the moments, in the meetings, in our uh, stand-ups in the morning or whatever, we're actually building the culture if we were aware of it. And we, we can consciously override some other beliefs that people have by investing in that moment and taking it and owning it for something positive that we can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, gents, a lovely opportunity always to, to chat and to connect. And what can we say except stay focused? people (laughs) (laughs) thank you pleasure as always no great